So last week we talked about this idea taught on this one passage of scripture if you were here. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost, right? And we looked at this idea that Jesus is the son of man, right? Which is the prophetic name given to him in Daniel chapter 7. That he is the son of man, the representation of mankind. And he came for a specific purpose. His target was the lost. And he came to seek and to save. And we said that salvation is complete in Christ The coming of Christ is complete. Of course, he will return. But the seeking, he has partnered with his church to fulfill. And so Christ draws people and we communicate the truth. And through that communication, we see eternity change. This is crazy. And so hopefully you grabbed one of these last week, these contend with me cards. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I was in uh, one of my friend's houses the other day and I asked him where, you know, who he's praying for. And he was like, oh man, I didn't grab a card. I just put my foot in his butt. And I was like, not really, but I was just like, dude, go get a card and stink and start praying for people because this is what life is about. This is what church is about. So now you all feel bad. Grab a card on the way out if you didn't get one and make sure you start praying daily for those who are far from God. I can tell you that I am and that I'm watching God already start to do some miraculous stuff. And so I want to urge you discipline yourself for the next 28 days and of course beyond that as well to cultivate the habit of praying for those who are far from God that the lost would be found. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm gonna read a passage in the scripture. I wanna unpack for you uh, a little bit more of this idea of contending, grappling, fighting, (laughs) believing for the fullness of God on earth as it is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to start in verse 24. I'm actually just going to read verse 24, and then we'll pray. All right? You ready? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It'll be up on the screen. There it is. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, grace. Father, we come to you as broken, imperfect people. Um, not worthy of all that you give us. Jesus, I know that there's many different stories in this room, some that are frustrated with you, some that uh, feel far from you, and um, some that, uh, that are just so hungry for more of you. God, you know all of our individual needs and all of our individual stories, and I pray in the name of Jesus that today you would speak specifically and directly to each of us. Lord, I confess my need for you. God, would you by your grace communicate through me? Jesus, I confess that I'm not worthy of that, but I know that you have made me righteous through Christ. And so I receive that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Bible uh, talks a lot about miracles, a lot about the supernatural. Today's talk is going to be called More Miracles, More Miracles. So if you like to take notes, you can write that down. In June of 2004, the 19th of June 2004, I married my sweetheart of five and a half years at that time. We got married at 21 years old as virgins, madly in love with each other and uh, madly in love with Jesus. And uh, wonderful experience. I have to tell you, I married way up. My wife is amazing, and uh, she is a godly woman. Men, you need to look for a godly woman and review the four teachings we just did on family. But uh, she is a kind woman. She is consistent. It is so awesome to have a wife who is consistent. (sighs) She's consistent. I mean, she is a rock. I never have to worry about, like, I don't know, is she going to be crazy emotional today? Is she going to be really upset today? She's so consistent, stayed by God's grace, and she's incredibly 
incredibly loving. One of the uh, cool things that happened in our journey just before we got married, her father, who's a pastor of a church in Clinton, Connecticut, who actually preached at City Church a few months ago, uh, her father and her brother pulled me aside, and uh, they said, Justin, we really need to meet with you. There's some specific things we need to talk to you about before you're married. And so this was just a few days before the wedding, and so I pull away, and I meet with Bob and Bobby, and so uh, we're sitting down, and they, they kind of come around me, and Bob's got tears in his eyes, and he's not really a crier, and so I know something's up, and he takes takes out some bread and some wine and he puts it before us and he says to me right into my eyes he says listen to me from this day forward you will never be my son-in-law he said you are my son and he said i will treat you from now until the day that you die or i die just as i treat my own son my natural son And just as I treat my daughter, everything I have is yours, and you have all the rights of a son. And then we sealed that commitment with communion. The three of us, three men, just weeping like babies as he put out that covenant and said, from this day forward, everything I have is yours. And I took him up on that pretty quick because... uh, (laughs) because, Because what happened is we were supposed to close on this house that we were going to buy, and, uh, and it didn't come through. And so we were on our honeymoon, and we had nowhere to live. Not me and Bob. Me and Chrissy were on our honeymoon, and we had nowhere to live. And so we were calling Bob and be like, hey, you remember that time we had communion a couple weeks ago? And, and you said everything you had. Do you think we could move in with you guys? And so, so uh, that's exactly what we did. Right after the wedding, uh, we uh, went to the honeymoon. Right after the honeymoon, we moved in with the in-laws. And the good news was they had just bought a new house, hadn't sold their old house, so we took over their old house. And so... We lived for a couple months in their old house, and they graciously, generously didn't even budge. I said, of course you can. And as we prepared to buy our first house, they helped us incredibly in many, many different ways to get that house. Again, just displaying this attitude that everything that they have is ours. Even just recently, we went on vacation last summer to uh, Florida, and our vehicle was having some issues, and they just said, listen, why don't you just take our car? And so we took their car with two wild boys in the back seat, smashing French fries into their seats, you know, all the way down down to Florida and all the way back and uh, just consistently displaying for us this incredible, gracious generosity. Now, I married Chrissy, okay? I didn't marry Bob, to the glory of God. I married Chrissy, right? And so I married Chrissy, and so that's who I have covenant with. That was the point of the whole ceremony. I didn't marry, I didn't think to myself, boy, she's got a really cool dad. Maybe I'll marry that girl. I mean, although that was helpful and wonderful, the essence and the purpose was to marry Chrissy, right? That was the whole thing. I fell in love with her. But when I married Chrissy, there were some benefits attached. And I got brought into a family that allowed me to have access to things that were beyond this relationship with my wife. And so I had access to Bob, and I had access to Dawn, and I had access to Bobby, and I had access to their resources and access to their advice and a relationship and a covenant and a unity with them that was beyond anything that would have occurred outside of my commitment to Chrissy. 
Now, in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2 that we just read there, it says, stay with me today, it says that uh, Jesus Christ was our substitute, right? It gives us that glorious substitution that we talked about just a couple minutes ago, this beautiful idea that Christ has taken our place. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Wasn't that what Jesus was all about, right? He came to seek and save the lost, and he did that by replacing you before God with himself, making himself into sin so that you could become righteousness. And this glorious truth gives you access to the Father. But look what it says at the end of the verse, attached as a benefit of this covenant. By his wounds, you have been healed. Go with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 16 and 17 in English Standard Version of the Bible. It'll be up there. Matthew chapter 8 says this. That evening they brought to him, that's Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Somebody say all. All. We see this again and again and again, by the way, in the passage of Scripture. You cannot find a time in Scripture where a sick person came to Jesus and he did not heal them. But uh, we'll get to that in a second. And so he healed everybody, right? And then it says this, interestingly enough. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now he's quoting there Isaiah chapter 53. And if you know anything about Isaiah chapter 53, you know it's a chapter in the scripture that outlines the substitutionary work accomplished through the gospel, okay? So it outlines for us how Christ became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now he's quoting Isaiah 53, which is about the substitutionary work of Christ in reference to the fact that Jesus is healing sick people and casting out demons. So what do we see consistently happening in scripture that Jesus came with a specific mission and the mission was to seek and save the lost he's concerned primarily about your eternity and so he wants to remove the guilt of sin that separates you from God and reconcile you to God forever however God is an all-inclusive God in that he loves the whole person he loves your spirit He loves your soul, and he loves your body. And there's some implications, there's some overflow to the covenant that was made between you and Jesus in divine eternal marriage. And one of those implications is what the Bible calls divine healing. Now, in heaven, no one is oppressed by the devil. And in heaven, no one is sick. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's a big question. Is it God's will to heal? Is it God's will to heal? Well, we see that healing is attached or is a, on the basis of healing, on the basis of the covenant given to us in the gospel, we find a promise that he heals our diseases, right? Raise your hand if you've ever been sick. In your entire life. So, some people don't have their hands up. That's either you just hate me or that's amazing. I got to eat what you're eating. Got to take some of those juju pills or whatever it is that you're doing. That's amazing. But uh, yeah, most of us have experienced sickness. Now, we see again and again and again in Scripture Jesus healing the sick, right? And so, uh, one uh, uh, pastor and theologian, Dr. Ken Blue, said if Jesus truly reveals the character of God to us, then we may see speculating about and arguing over God's will in sickness and healing. Jesus healed because he loved them, right? So God heals not because we earn it, but because of his covenant of grace, okay? 
Now, God heals because on the basis of the gospel, he's removed not just sin, but all the effects of sin. And so according to scripture, we see that oppression and depression and fear and lust and greed and cancer and every type of physical calamity manifested on this earth out of the curse of sin. So that was the overflow that came out of the separation of God and man with sin, okay? Now, theologically, stay with me, okay? Because for some of us, experientially, we're already hitting a wall. Pause on the experiential side because I'm going to get there, I promise. But just it theologically engage this concept and this truth with me, okay? What we're seeing here is that Jesus heals, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because he has earned it on the cross. By his stripes, we have been healed. And so he teaches his disciples to go out and heal the sick. He tells them, pray for the sick and expect them to recover. And of course, James gives us the same command. And so we see it again and again and again in the New Testament. To not see it in the New Testament is to just not be honest, right? So in Luke chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, Mark chapter 16, again and again and again, he gives his disciples this command, heal the sick. Now, some scholars have argued, well, that's, that's, that was for them, that wasn't for us. Unfortunately for them, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples to teach those that they lead to Christ everything that he had commanded them. And so what we see here is that they began to teach everything that he had commanded them, one of which was to pray for the sick. And of course, Jesus' little brother James teaches this to the church in the book of James. He tells them, if anyone is sick among you, let the elders of the church pray for them. The prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and God will raise him up, right? And so here's what we see so far. That Jesus never turned a sick person away. Every single sick person in the New Testament that came to Jesus for healing was healed. Jesus never turned a sick person away. We see in Scripture in Old and New Testament that God is the healer. And that he commands us to pray for the sick and expect them to recover. And the basis of physical healing is not our deeds, not our actions, but the atoning work of Christ. You all with me so far? Somebody say it's getting warm in here. Okay, so... um, Question for us today. Why don't we see more people healed? I don't know if you're living on planet Earth, but if you are, you've probably prayed for some people that didn't get healed. I've prayed for a lot of people who didn't get healed. I've prayed for a lot of people every day, again and again and again, and they still didn't get healed. But I can tell you this, I've prayed for some people that have gotten healed too. And I've watched some cancer disappear through one prayer. One prayer. Unbelievable. And I've watched tumors disappear. And I've seen bones go back into place and blind eyes open up. Some amazing stuff. But I can be honest that every time I pray for the sick, they don't get healed. In fact, I would say that a fraction of those who I pray for actually experience some type of divine touch from God and are supernaturally restored or healed. So why don't more people get healed? Now, if the scripture says that on the basis of the new covenant, you have the responsibility and the opportunity to pray for the sick and actually see miracles, that's pretty awesome since 100% of the people in this room have experienced sickness, everything from the common cold to massive degeneration 
degenerative issues to incredible mental problems. Every one of us has been touched by this sickness in the world. We live in a broken, fallen world. We're all going to die. And so part of that reality is sickness, right? And so we have this experience. Why don't we see more people healed? If we want to see more miracles, we should probably confront that question with some honesty, right? Right? Uh, Raise your hand if you would like to see people healed in your life. Okay, good. We're in the right place. Just making sure that you were, had a pulse and you were, you were in this. So um, why don't we see some more people healed? I'm going to give you three quick reasons and um, focus primarily on the third one, all right? The first one, and I would say this is the exception rather than the rule, okay? So I say this one carefully because far too often this one is used abusively in the church. One reason that we see in Scripture why people are not healed is unbelief or sin. And you can't avoid that. Uh, it's just in the Bible. Matthew chapter 17 um, The uh, disciples try to deliver this person from oppression. They can't. They ask Jesus why. He says, you had little faith. You didn't believe. Notice, this is very important, never in the scripture does anyone ever rebuke the sick person for not having enough faith. Very important. Here at City Church, when we pray for a miracle, we never rebuke a sick person for not having enough faith. If anybody's going to get rebuked, it's the person praying, right? It's the person praying. That's what we see in Scripture. Acts chapter 13, there's a false prophet. He's deceiving many. And God strikes him with blindness, a physical condition that he gets because of his sin, right? He's in active, willful rebellion towards God. It happened. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, if you know the story, are lying to the church about their generosity, right? And God decides for whatever reason, that's not cool that time. No more soup for you. Boom. They're both dead. And they prematurely die because of their sin. They do. It happens in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the uh, prophet Elisha's servant gets struck with leprosy. There's multiple times that we see this happen in Scripture that there's a bitter or unforgiving heart and grace is stopped flowing in a person's life because of their willful, consistent, rebellious, unrepentant sin. It can hold back a blessing from God. But that's the exception rather than the rule. There's another more mysterious reason why we don't see people healed, a more ambiguous reason. Um, Scripture describes, we talked about it last week, that we are living, friends, in a war zone, okay? We're living in a war zone, that this is the now and the not yet. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that everything has been subjected to Jesus, okay? Everything, every angel, every demon, every sickness, every curse, every disease, every unbelieving thing, everything has been subjected to Jesus. That's awesome news. The next phrase in Hebrews chapter 2 is, and at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what we see as a reality in Scripture, and I've explained it this way before, is the D-Day, V-Day, World War II illustration is probably the best I've ever heard, that on D-Day, the Allied forces in World War II understood that they had won the war because they won the beaches of France, and yet it wasn't until a year and a half later on V-Day that they actually had unconditional surrender of all their enemies, and between D-Day and V-Day, more troops died than any other time in the war, and yet they already knew that the war had been won. And so here we live in the tension where Christ has already purchased for us, right, everything we need according to life and godliness, not just for our spirits, but also for our bodies and our souls. And yet at the same time, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. We live in this tension. But here's what you don't do. In the midst of the tension, the worst thing you can do is change God. In other words, well, maybe God just doesn't like me. Maybe he just doesn't want to heal me because... Maybe I'm not worthy. No, 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 no. 
You experience healing because of grace, not because of works. Well, then maybe, uh, maybe I just haven't done enough good things. No, 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 no. Don't change God. Don't change God. And you say, well, Justin, they died and they weren't healed. Really? Really? You think they're sick now? They died believing for a miracle and they never saw it. Really? They saw it. They're living it right now. They saw it. Why did God not manifest it on this side of eternity? I don't know. But I do know that we live in the tension of two worlds and Jesus always wants to heal. And by his sovereign grace, often it is in this life and then other times it is not in this life. It's in the next life. And we see this all through scripture, by the way. Rock stars for Jesus were sick. The apostle Paul was sick in Galatia. In fact, he had to stop and he ended up preaching to the Galatians because of a physical condition, okay? Trophimus was left sick in a place called Miletus. He was one of the guys that traveled with Paul. Timothy, pretty significant mover and shaker in the body of Christ, pastor of Ephesus, had consistent stomach issues that he was struggling with. We see again and again and again that there are moments where healing does not manifest and sometimes we just don't know why. But there's a third reason. And remember I said I'm going to focus most of my time on this third reason why we don't see more miracles, more miracles. And I believe, stay with me today, that this is the number one reason that the vast majority of us in this room don't see more miracles in our life. And it's not because God's not willing, and it's not because you're in some terrible sin. It's the third reason. Go with me, if you will, to... uh, Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. I want to read a little passage in the Bible. Luke chapter 11, it's in the Amplified Translation. I'm going to read different chunks of it today. Luke chapter 11 in the Amplified Bible. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Now, this passage is a passage where Jesus is asked by his disciples, hey, uh, Jesus, would you please teach us how to pray? Would you please teach us how to pray? And he gives them the Our Father that we just walked through, right, and teaches them how to pray. He teaches them how to contend, this idea of your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, agreeing with God's will in heaven and asking him to manifest it on the earth. And then he follows up with this. This is very applicable to your life. So just stay with it, okay? You can turn to the person next to you, maybe just... Just uh, give him a little slap on the face or give him a little smile and say, hey, come on, stay with us today. It's a little warm at the Bijou Theater, but you're going to be all right. Come on, turn to him, say something nice to him. There you go, wrestle him up, say, hey, this is okay, you're going to be fine. Stay with me. Okay, verse 5 in chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, right? Check it out. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and will say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for I have a friend of mine who is on a journey, has just come, and I have nothing to put before him. And he from within will answer, do not disturb me. The door is now closed, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and supply you with anything. Now, hold on. He's describing a Middle Eastern tradition that's very important for us to grasp if we understand the essence of this passage. Okay, it's the tradition or the ethic of hospitality. And in the Middle East, even to this day, those that lived there understood that if a stranger came into town, it was my divine responsibility, a sacred moral obligation to provide food, shelter, and protection for that individual. Even if the person was my enemy, I still let them in the house because they were a stranger and I was called by God, obligated to help. And so now we find this individual who's having a friend show up and he doesn't have bread. He has a divine obligation to help this person and yet he doesn't have what he needs. So he knocks on his 
his neighbor's door. Now, typically in the Middle East, you would leave your door open all day, okay? All day, the door was open. But at night, when it was time to go to bed, you closed the door. And, uh, and at that point, you and your 16 kids and the chickens and the donkeys and your wife were all in one room. All the husbands say, oh. And so, yeah, you were all in one room, right? And once everybody fell asleep, some of you didn't get that, it's all right. You'll get it later. You get it on the drive home. It's all good. When, you, when everyone fell asleep, it was like, finally, the stinking chickens are quiet. The little baby's quiet. Oh. I need some bread. That's what's happening. And so this guy is like, no, stop it. The chickens are going nuts now. You can wake up the baby and then we're not going to sleep. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. Stop it. And this guy keeps... Look what happens. He says this. I tell you, verse 8, although he will not get up and supply him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his shameless persistence and insistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now he's going to reference this awkward story. I love how Jesus gives us these stories that are like, what? And then he's going to pull it into a principle on prayer. All right? Stay with us today. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and keep on asking, and it shall be given you. Seek and keep on seeking, and you shall find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door shall be open to you. For everyone who asks and keep on asking receives. And he who seeks and keeps on seeking finds. And him who knocks and keeps on knocking, the door shall be open. In other words, stay with this, okay? Jesus is teaching why would he give us this crazy story? I believe there's a couple of very specific implications. One of which is he's saying, listen, there are going to be times where it feels like you're knocking on God's door and he's saying to you, do not disturb me. There are going to be times where you knock for prayer and it feels like God says, I can't, like this man said, I can't do anything. I don't know if you noticed that he said that. He said, do not disturb me. The door is closed. And then he later he says, I can't. I can't do anything for you, right? There's going to be times where you ask God for a miracle and it feels like God is saying, don't bother me right now. Or it feels like God is saying, do not disturb me. There are going to be times where you pray and he doesn't answer and you begin feeling like, you know what? I don't even think he's a friend of mine. I don't think God cares. He said he was my friend in the gospel, but I've been asking and I've been praying and I've been seeking and it doesn't seem that he's answering. I don't think he cares. And when you start feeling that way, ever felt that way before? When you start feeling that way, Jesus has already told you what you should do. Jesus has already told you in this story that there will be moments when you feel that way. And when you do, don't believe that God is being bothered by you. When you do, don't believe that God can't help in this situation. When you do, don't believe that God is not your friend. Instead, do something that sounds incredibly annoying. Keep on knocking. Keep on knocking. Shameless, persistent knocking. Hold on a second. This is kind of weird. I mean, is not like, are we supposed to like wear God down? Doesn't that, isn't that how this feels? Like, are you telling me that I'm supposed to like bother God until he's like, all right, fine. You are so annoying. Because that's what happened in the story, right? This shameless, persistent knocking got this guy somewhere with his neighbor 
because uh, his, neighbor, his neighbor was deeply displeased with him, so displeased to the extent that he finally acts. What is Jesus teaching us about God? Through this story, he's teaching us the exact opposite. That a neighbor, a man, would be so annoyed by this shameless, persistent knocking that he would finally release what it is that you asked of him. But God, when you shamelessly, persistently knock, you get somewhere with God, not because it deeply displeases him, but because it deeply pleases him for you to knock like that. Why would it please God that you are so shamelessly, persistently knocking? Because think about this. If you're shameless, that means that you've applied the gospel to such a degree internally in your heart that you're no longer on a, on a merit badge system with God. From now on, you're operating with God as father and son, and you're saying, God, you're not gonna bless me because I'm worthy. You're gonna bless me because Christ is worthy. I have no shame because you've removed it, and I've internalized that reality, and I'm not living by, well, if I give enough or if I do enough, he's gonna like me. I'm living fully accepted so I can operate from a persistent, shameless attitude, right? So if you're shameless, it proves that the grace and the cross have gotten into your bones. Come on, I'm preaching good today. Somebody should be excited. <laughs> gotten into your bones. Now, if you're persistent, if you're persistent, what does that tell me about your reality? It tells me, check this out. It tells me about your view of reality that the word of God has become more real to you than the circumstance you're living in. It tells me that God, you know what? Even though this looks like chaos and nothing is working, I'm still asking and it looks ridiculous to everyone else, but it makes perfect sense to you because what I'm saying is that this truth supersedes this truth. And I believe that. So shameless, persistent knocking pleases God because you're consistently doing something about your attitudes or about your belief system, not just sitting back and professing it without doing anything. So the knocking consistently pleases God because he has a bias towards action too. You see in this today? Shameless, persistent knocking doesn't bother God. It deeply pleases him. It deeply pleases him. So it's true. Some miracles are held back because of some willful sin. That's true. But I believe that's a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the miracles that we miss out on. Some miracles we'll never know why we don't see them. It's a mystery. It's the war zone of this world. It's the now and not yet. We don't totally understand. But I would contend today that most miracles that you don't see manifest don't happen because you stopped seeking. And here's the truth that kind of bubbled up in my soul. Persistence releases the miraculous. Persistence releases the miraculous. Every time? No, not every time. There will be times where you don't see it. You're persistent to the end, and you still don't see it. And as soon as you cross the divide and you step into God's presence, you will see the manifestation of that miracle, and he'll say, you endured. Well done. You got here. You stayed faithful to the end. I've asked my wife, you know, and other people around me that love me, I say, listen, if I get some illness or whatever, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for me so that I'm healed. And pray for me so that I'm healed. And if I get worse, pray for me so that I'm healed. And then pray for me so that I'm healed. And if I die, celebrate, because I'm healed. And if I get healed in this life, celebrate, because I'm healed. 
But either way, be faithful and be persistent because it's going to make God smile. And here's what my conviction is, that if you would just become persistent, if you would just contend with me, I believe that this community would see a rapid increase in the miraculous because the consistency of our content. Why do I have you guys filling out cards and doing this day after day? Why are you bothering me with that, Justin? Because, friend, your shameless, persistent knocking unlocks salvation for your friends and your neighbors. You've misunderstood the essence of prayer. You thought, listen, it's a one and done. I just pray and it's done. Sometimes, but other times, you must knock again. Think about Abraham. Think about Abraham. How he believes God, that God's called him out of his land and into a promised land. He never sees it, by the way. He never sees a nation come out of himself, right? All he sees is one son. He dies with one son. And yet now, standing back and looking at the great nation, both the Jews and all the children of Abraham that have come to him in Christ, he sees as many children as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. He sees the fulfillment of the promise, but it wasn't in his lifetime. Think about Joseph sitting in a prison, not seeing the manifestation of the promise to be a great ruler, and yet God in his sovereignty permits that season of suffering and then releases Joseph into the fullness of his blessing. Think about Paul. This one blows my mind. I can imagine the apostle Paul. He was kind of a go-getter. And here he is, stuck in prison for years. Stuck in prison for years. And I could imagine that he probably thought to himself, God, really? I mean, I am anointed to plant churches, God. And you got me stuck in this prison and all I can do is write these stinking letters. <laughs> Not realizing that his letters would plant far more churches than his body ever could. Shameless, persistence, consistent. I can guarantee you that we would see far more miracles if we just kept knocking. So let me give you a radical recalibration of your personal prayer life, okay? Radical recalibration of your personal prayer life. This will change your life, all right? So if you missed everything else I said, apply this, and it will change your life. I can say that as I've studied this, it has changed my life. It has changed the way that I pray. So let me give you a radical recalibration. Very simple, okay? Many of us embrace what I would call an all-or-nothing idea of prayer. All or nothing. Well, we prayed, and nothing happened. So what do we do now? It's awkward to pray again when you have an all-or-nothing idea of prayer. It's awkward to pray again because it was all-or-nothing, and you already prayed and nothing happened, and so now it's like, well, I guess we pray again. Now it's like we're kind of like, all right, God, well, we don't really know why you didn't do anything, and so here we are again, and, and uh, you know, now it's all weird in the room because we prayed and nothing happened, and, and here we are. And so a lot of people shy away from praying for healing because they operate from an all-or-nothing prayer model in their mind. And so they pray for somebody for a miracle, and nothing happens, and it's like, bummer. I don't know what to do now, right? For a long time, I operated out of an all-or-nothing prayer mentality. And I remember for a long time, uh, years ago now, I, uh, I prayed for someone. I had a word of knowledge. I had a prophetic direction from the Lord at a prayer meeting, at a, at a, at a Christian gathering. There a few hundred people, and we're worshiping. And I, I, I go up and I say, listen, I really feel that there's somebody in the room today that has a left elbow that you've hurt badly while playing baseball. If there's anybody here that has that condition, would you come after the service and I'll pray for you? And I thought, boy, I'm really stepping out, but I'll do it after the service. That way no one will know if I bombed, right? 
man of faith. And so that's what I did. And so at the end of service, this kid comes up to me, 16-year-old kid says, hey, that's me. You know, I've got this elbow problem. I think it was his left or maybe his right. I can't remember. But we'll just say left elbow for the sake of the story. But I can't remember which elbow it was. But anyways, he says, yeah, I have this elbow problem, and, and that was me. And would you pray for me? And so I said, man, I got big faith. God gave me this word. It's going to be awesome. And so I prayed for him, and guess what happens? Nothing happens. <laughs> Nothing happens. Nothing. It's like, how does it feel? It feels the same. Well, can't you like lie? Say it feels a little better. I mean, is there anything you can do? And, and so, you know, no, nothing happens. So I'm like, all right, well, okay. And I had an all or nothing perspective. And so I was so discouraged. I walked out of there like, womp, womp, like God, you know, I thought we had this deal going. You were going to tell me secret things. I was going to do it. It was going to be awesome. Right. And it didn't work out. What's going on? It was about a year later that I happened to run into that kid at a youth group. And he came running up to me and said, hey, you remember me? And I said, no, I don't really remember you. And he said, you know, you prayed for my elbow at the conference, and I prayed, and remember nothing happened. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, glad you reminded me. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, listen, the next day I got home, and all the pain in my elbow was gone. And he said, then my mom took me to the doctor, and he said, he said, all of the damage in my elbow was gone. And he said, I played the entire baseball season. I had the best baseball season that I've ever had. And he's like, I can't believe God would do that for me. And I was like, I can't believe God would do that for me. <laughs> I was like, that is amazing. You see how this all or nothing perspective just doesn't work? See, all or nothing doesn't accurately give you opportunity to see the miraculous. So let me suggest a different calibration for the way that you pray. With the understanding that God sometimes works with innumerable steps in the process of a miracle. So when you pray, you don't think of it as all or nothing, though we do want to see people healed in one prayer, and we believe God does that a lot. But we pray, not with an all or nothing mindset, but with a mindset that we just made a divine deposit into eternity. And we pray like, okay, I believe God just made a deposit. Now it's easy to pray again because it's easy to make a second deposit, right? And so you say, well, let's pray again. And we'll make another deposit of faith into this situation. And then nothing happened. Well, then let's pray again. And let's again. And now we can shamelessly, persistently knock again and again and again and not feel like we're out of faith because we prayed once and it didn't happen. Instead, we start feeling like our faith is growing because I've made a deposit every day. And I believe God is working. See, this applies to every area of the miraculous in your life. You start praying for your coworker, and nothing happens. You pray the next day and nothing happens. You pray the next day and nothing happens. But every time you pray, you pray, God, I believe that today you're doing something in his life. Maybe today a family member is going to call him who's a Christian. Maybe today I'm going to pray for this individual and he's going to open up to the idea that God is concerned about him. Maybe today I'm going to pray for him and he's going to hear something on the radio that's going to draw him towards God. Maybe today I'm going to pray for him and a loved one is going to draw him to Christ. Every day something I believe is going to happen, God. And now you've been praying for 28 days for these people who don't know Jesus and you have this confidence that God's been doing something every day because little by little by little you are contending for the miraculous friend. If I could give you one piece of advice to see more miracles, it would be this. Knock again knock again. If the band wants to come up, we're going to sing a song in just a second here. Would you stand your feet with me?
I don't know why we don't see things every time we pray. I don't think anyone but God fully understands that. But I do know this, that as we ask God for miracles and sometimes don't see them, God is working even then to develop in us a persistence, a consistency, that our satisfaction is ultimately and eternally found in Jesus. Now, we do pray for the miracles of God. But our satisfaction isn't in praying for the miracles. God could heal you of every disease in the world. You're still going to die. You're still going to die because this broken body that you have in Adam needs to be sown into the ground so that it can be raised up as an imperishable body. And so does God care about every cold, about every little sickness, about every little ache? Yes, he does. That's the type of God he is. He cares. And what does he want you to do? He just wants you to shamelessly, persistently knock, not based on your worthiness, based on his goodness. And when you see him manifest, you glorify him. And if you don't, you glorify him. I can tell you for sure that as we begin to pray for more miracles, we will not just see more miracles but we'll also see more satisfaction in Christ than ever before. Take a couple minutes just to sing this song. I want you just to engage with God today. Maybe you need a miracle. Maybe there's a miracle in your life that you have decided to stop praying about because it's been so long, you just got tired of it. I want to challenge you. Consider praying again. And ask the Lord to stir your heart To say, you know, God, maybe it's less about always seeing it and more about developing trust and persistence in you. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.